listening is going to be uh, be interested in this. We're going to hey, I'll show. Um, is it, we're just going to start recording here, and then we'll just kind of you know if we, if we can use some of this kind of banner stuff, we will, and then we'll get into it. I know you've got a limited time. I know you like to get off the. That you're a smart man. You like to get off the electronics by 7 p.m., which I think is probably a wise decision. For <laughs> well, um, as long as as long as it's not kind of uh, work stimulating, so anything that gets me kind of you know going, exciting, gets new idea and all of that, then yeah, I try to mine data from patients and and, and athletes at 7:30, and suddenly you know it was wide awake kind of thing. So uh, yeah, that that cuts into the sleep. Uh, yeah. Zach, Zach, are we go? Are we? Rec- are you ready to record stuff? Yeah, we're ago? we're ready to go. Okay, so hey, so yeah, thanks for coming on. So one of the things I, I listened to a, to a podcast with you, you did with Doctor Mark Bubbs uh, a little while ago, and and one of the things that was interesting to me, uh, you know, I thought the the whole discussion about uh, long term ketogenic athletes and some of the issues with that, but one of the things in particular for me that stood out was the what you'd said early in the podcast that you'd, you'd observed a number of high-level elite athletes, and they had all high blood glucoses. And it was kind of interesting because I have a similar situation. I, I'm a very competitive athlete. I competed at a high level, and my blood glucose was, was relatively high. And that's been concerning for a lot of people. And I, I have sort of seen with another people were postulating that that may be a sort of response to high-level athletics. And I know you think it may be a, maybe it's a stress-related response. Can you, can, you, can you talk about those findings a little bit and who you were, who you were dealing with when you saw that stuff? Sure, sure. Um, obviously, uh, some of the stuff that I, I cover is, um, is based on observation on behavior and physiological data that we were tracking. And what we are doing is now trying to get our thoughts uh, and explanations into a PhD to then move into a study to see, you know, to have some form of validation for it. So it's kind of early stages. And I personally feel I don't think we are a full at sea, but we still <laughs> there's still a lot of work to do. So um, our our view is so we, we took um, a reasonably good number of 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 athletes, which is um, we took around twenty athletes um, and started to observe that in certain circumstances, despite the low carbohydrate diet, we could find a substantially risen uh, fasting glucose given the diet. So the, the the problem. So if you take the average person on a standard uh modern diet full of refined food and specifically high in sugar then obviously the the, the an elevated fasting glucose and and daily average elevated glucose readings would be justified but in an athlete you start to think well how does that happen and this happened about three four years ago three and a half years ago to be more more specific and it started with me as well many years beforehand and that's the reason why i got into the whole um ketogenic diet low carbohydrate and performance because my diet was good uh, primarily we eat organic as two nutritionists in the house so you can imagine um i'm italian origin well i'm italian not origin <laughs> i'm italian <laughs> and i grew up in you know in 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 pretty decent food my grandma used to grow stuff and yet i had a fasting glucose that was around five 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 six millimolar which is your 100 110 so i thought well 
I can't exercise more. Well, I can, but I don't think that's the problem. Um, the, the quality of the food, there is hardly any refined food in the diet. So I thought, well, what the heck, maybe it's down to the gene or something like that. So when we started to then observe that more and more fit people, not necessarily athletes, actually still had an elevated glucose, which wasn't diabetic, so it wasn't what a diagnosis, yet it was definitely far from optimal. If we look at the work of you know, Dr. Walsh, you know, anything above 84 hours 4.6 is considered, is associated with all-cause mortality. So you think, well, how can that happen? So, and eventually working with um, Dr. Daniel Plews, uh, Professor Paul Larson, and some of these, you know, really great uh, researcher, we started to realize that, I said, guys, you better start to look at the blood glucose and and they contacted me and said alex these these readings are are not they don't make any sense and the low carbohydrate approach helped but it didn't really resolve the actual issue and she we could see some really erratic reads readings all the way throughout and then last year i got data from a couple of olympians one is still current and the other one is still following a pretty decent, you know, sport routine and 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 good diet. And nearly 70% of the readings were above the actual optimal, but quite substantially. <clears throat> still not quite in the diabetic range, but definitely something that wouldn't really fit. So that's the reason why I got into that. So to answer to your question, there are different things that control blood glucose and two of the ones that I tend to look into obviously is the diet as in what is the diet as in is it high in refined food and high in you know sugars or simple sugars or just an excess of carbohydrate or and is there an underlying degree of chronic or acute inflammatory response in athletics uh, in, in our athletes, the, the one that we observed, it was definitely the latter rather than the former. So there was a substantial degree of activation of this, the immune system, and this could have been beneficial. So trying to repair muscle tissue, trying to rebuild new lean tissue, trying to, you know, remodel muscle, fine. Um, but in some others, this wasn't always the case. So you can then imagine if you put the athlete with that kind of chronic degree of inflammatory response, and on top of that, you add a diet that is high in sugars and high refined, then eventually you start to explain quite a few things. And I'm not sure if that makes some sense. No, it makes sense. You know, there's a study that I, I looked at that came out in 2016. I'm not sure you're familiar with it. It came out in... Uh... It's called, it's called something in the Journal of Diabetes and Science and Technology. Felicity Thomas was the lead author, and they had looked at ten what they what they regarded with sub elite athletes, and they defined those as guys with at least six yeah. hours of intense exercise a week with you know resting heart rate below sixty. And they found that forty percent of those athletes had fasting blood glucoses in the pre diabetic range, yeah. uh, and seventy percent of the time was spent above six millimolar. And so I think that yeah. again you see this this pattern with athletes, which you'd otherwise look at their their health parameters you know most of them are lean most of them yeah. have a good deal of muscle mass most of them have a good capacity for exercise all of which 
are associated generally with better health outcomes for most part. But at the same time, we're seeing this for some reason is the, is the intensity of the athletics driving the glucose up either via inflammatory mechanisms or energy required mechanisms. I don't know that's been elucidated. I know there's some people that postulate that, you know, your body is, is producing the glucose in response to the higher demands. Are you seeing a, a particular type of athlete that predicts, you know, a, a, you know, a Zach Bitter, uh, you know, long steady, steady state or a more highly glycolytic anaerobic type athlete where we, where this tends to, to happen? Oh, great question. Um, so the, the one thing I want to specify on that is that we, we tend to be a little bit more concerned when the athlete is not in a loading phase. So, for example, if, if an athlete goes through periodization of training and has a block of four or five, so with, you know, with a constant increase of load and then a recovery phase, then at the peak of the load, is reasonably normal to have that as a reflection because this is the whole purpose of the adaptation generated through the training. So post-race, for example, is really, really common for virtually all the people that we tested, virtually all of them, to actually have a substantial elevated you know, degree of glucose, fasting glucose and daily average glucose for two to three days. However, when we see athletes that in the deload phase, maintain for three, four days an elevated glucose, then we know that we need to look into a lot more depth into the physiology of the athlete. And then we, this is when we can start to perhaps measure things like do a Dutch test or do um, more blood tests, look at more specific inflammatory markers and not necessarily HIV. The, the, the problem that we, I see the problem in both areas. So both more anaerobic and aerobic do consider that obviously the anaerobic is a very loose. I prefer to call it high intensity and high volume personally, but you know, people know that, but in the high intensity, you have two major category. The first one is the type of the resistance training, individuals and the other one is the, the the speed individuals and which are both part of the high intensity but they challenge the body in a slightly different way so uh, for example for certain sport for me it doesn't matter what is the total strength of my punch but it's the speed that i need to go from a to b in the quickest amount of time and you know hitting the very specific target that is about less than a square inch so in resistant training that is a different factor so interestingly enough in resistant training doesn't seem to happen as often whereas in high intensity speed work and high volume work this is when i have observed the most cases. Um, I cannot say that this is this is it. I'm, I'm saying what we have observed. Yeah. And both of the. Oh, sorry. Yeah, carry on. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was just gonna gonna add to that. I know um, when I participated in the faster study with Dr. Volick, and then I've had uh, yeah. similar like kind of follow up blood tests. Uh, w with that context that you described, like in the presence of a high volume training block, 
one thing I've noticed is like fasting, uh, glucose, blood glucose levels tend to be kind of on the high end of average. Um, and then like post exercise sometimes too, it was described to me as kind of this, this glucose dump more or less from the liver upon completion of the activity. So then if you test yeah. those blood glucose levels right after you might see these like fairly, like almost in normal context, alarming levels of blood glucose level. Yeah, precisely, Zach. Oh, sorry. Can I call you Zach? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. I didn't I didn't ask. I was brought up by grandma. So I asked permission to call people by first name. How sad is that? <laughs> so um, in, in the other thing that that is absolutely spot on what we have observed is what we refer in jargon as rebound. So the, 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 we don't fully know if it is the liver dumping stuff or gluconeogenesis that is even more activated um, or um, potentially a decrease on insulin sensitivity because of inflammatory response as a rebound of inflammatory response. So, for example, you do a race, you have a substantial you know, production of anti-stress hormones um, so, you know, you've got the cortisol and glucocorticoids and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and then these, the, many of these have anti-inflammatory effect in order to, for us, to try to save our lives or in our case, to try to win a race or, you know, run for 20, 30, 40, 50 miles. And then when the activity finishes, the also the, the the action of these hormones will naturally will fade and this is when interestingly enough we see the rebound so you 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 we can postulate that there are three four mechanisms that can all contribute to that but right now i'm definitely nowhere near in a position where i can say is more of that than that what we have observed though that seems to be that interleukin 6 may play a role and interleukin-6 is one of these interleukins that generally speaking is anti-inflammatory yet over a certain amount in the presence of other inflammatory marker and in in, in a certain condition the interleukin-6 doesn't doesn't signal anymore in a classic pathway it, it starts to signal through a protein called p138 um and is it becomes trans-signaling, and that would override the anti-inflammatory effect becoming pro-inflammatory. So now quite a few things could make sense, and I'm using the word could because I don't want to jump to conclusion. There are too many um, researchers to do that, <laughs> um, and, and I, I don't want to do that. Um, we think is very plausible explanation, uh, the research is there saying that it reduces insulin sensitivity. So you can easily see that if we have a rebound of interleukin-6, an excess amount, plus you add the diet, plus liver dumping of glucose, plus an increased gluconeogenesis through other means of macros, then there you are. You, 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 all of these things can potentially contribute. Let me, because uh, you mentioned, I think you mentioned heart rate variability a little bit. I know there's a relationship. You, you, I think you're looking at a relationship on that and perhaps glucose and some other factors. First of all, I have you know, noted in the past that 
heart rate variability was improved on a low carb diet diet at least in some studies can you talk a little bit about what is heart rate variability why do we care about it and how diet may may impact that Sure, sure. Um, so heart rate variability is, in a nutshell, the, the, the variation of the heartbeat between, between heartbeats. So if a heartbeat's at, let's, let's give a round figure, 60 beats per minute, it doesn't, it shouldn't, <laughs> at rest, uh, in a, in a, in a well-rested body, beat every second. There are variations within that length between, between beats. Now, Slightly counterintuitively at the start, but becomes very clear um, after a little bit of studying, the, the, the higher is the variability of the heart, normally the higher is the degree of fitness, the association with health, and to a certain extent the overall health of the individual. Um, I'm saying counterintuitively because we, 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 we assume that the heartbeat should be very regular. Well, when it's controlled by stress hormones, but in more specific, the autonomic nervous system, the, the, the part of the sympathetic activation, then this is when it becomes very, very regular. So if you take, for example, someone exercising at very, heart, very high heart rates, then the, the, the heart availability is virtually no. Whereas someone that is very well rested, uh, free from atrial fibrillation and some of the heart congenital or acquired uh, type of concerns, then you see a very strong variation between the heartbeat. So they, these are the two extremes. So HIV is 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 often taken as a proxy um, for um, technically is the absence of parasympathetic activity. I'm being very careful because often it's referred that it measures the sympathetic activation. Well, in actual fact, it measures the, measure the presence of the parasympathetic activation. And when that is not present, then the heart variability reduces for the reason I mentioned earlier. It is also referred as a measure overall, uh, let's say, I'm going to say in a loose way, fitness. In fact, we see athletes that tend to have a much, much wider increased number of variability. I'm taking into example, I'm saying HIV as a general, but that there are two main domains. One is the frequency domain and the other one is the time domain. For simplicity, I'm going to refer that as HIV in general. Um, so we, we, we notice that if the person was reasonably, um, how can I say, unhealthy in their eating habits and suddenly they decided to go on a keto or low carb or I'm going to say I'm going to say this very carefully, but reducing the, 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 the poor quality food in the diet, HIV will improve. The degree of improvement is seemingly correlated by the degree of a change, if that makes any sense. So if the diet was very poor and it went into a really healthy diet, at the start, the HIV dropped substantially. They felt really unwell. And then after X number of weeks, they started to see a different, a, a better mean average compared to what they were before. If the person 
had to only remove some refined stuff, then it wasn't, it didn't seem to have such a major effect. Except when people went on a strict ketogenic diet, um, in which case it seemed to have improved slightly more than just by removing rubbish from the diet, if that makes sense. So there are there are a few potential explanations, but there isn't any data out there. Um, seemingly, it could be uh, a, a, the action of a ketogenic diet on a gene called GAD, um, which reduces the amount of glutamate and increases the amount of GABA. This could be potentially proved by perhaps supplementing GABA, but then we don't know if that is the only reason. There are mitochondrial adaptation that can happen. So when the body burns more higher proportions of uh, substrate from fat and ketones, I'm going to keep the two separate, um, versus purely glycolytic or sugars, it seems that it potentially could generate less free oxidating radicals, which could have an effect on cellular entropy and therefore potentially um, have an effect on heart rate variability. Um, we know the anti-seizure effect of a ketogenic diet. That could also be another alley that could be uh, explored. So once again, there are quite a few potential mechanisms that could explain that the, the, the findings that we have observed. Um, but yeah, once again, I, I, can't, I can't pinpoint yet what, what it is. So quick question, um, you like, I th you feel free to correct me if I misunderstood you with this, but um, when you sure. were looking at kind of those early stages of people kind of switching to a ketogenic or a, a low carbohydrate diet, um, yeah. and then the heart rate variability, you mentioned that that those first few weeks kind of during what we would kind of call, I guess, more or less that transition phase, that's where you yeah. saw the most, um, the most, uh, I don't want to say like inconsistencies or more or less kind of what yeah. would normally be a red flag is, is that likely kind of just due to like the additional stress you're giving your body to kind of reprocess where it's deriving its primary like nutrients from? Uh, very good question. And we, we, we thought quite a bit about it. Um, one of the things that we are thinking, and I'm not saying that, it, it it is what we what we what we are thinking, but it, our our in our observation it would make sense. So I'm not discrediting at all what you just mentioned, and I think that plays a part, by the way. Um, but the other thing to take in consideration is the the the, the let's call it the, the chaos, the the entropy of the cells when you actually switch to a different substrate. Um, well, no, I'm, I, I need to rephrase that as well. We, we are always burning both, virtually all the time, in virtually every individual, we are virtually burning both. It's just what changes dramatically is the proportions of um, the, the, the substrate we burn. So in the, in the change between one type of macro being the predominant fuel for mitochondria to another so going from glucose to 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 higher fats and potentially ketones we might observe an increased entropy within that period 
because obviously certain genes need to be upregulated. Uh, the production of certain uh, uh, substrate by a certain pathway has to be increased. And obviously at the start, the body isn't used to that. And this is where it can potentially um, have an effect on the HIV being okay one day, great another day, plummeted down for absolutely no apparent reason. And, and what you said also is very, very important because obviously there is a change in how the body handles things, the cofactors and the nutrients, and then, you know, even that requires an adaptation, if that makes sense. So, yes, I would agree with that and also take in consideration that mitochondria are swapping fuel, especially complex one and two seems to be the ones that, you know, the NAD plus and an ADH kind of pump balance. Hey, Alessandro, I, I, I think I read somewhere where you talked about not just heart rate variability, but, but resting heart rate and maximum heart rate being affected. I know for me, uh, when I switched from a, you know, a, a lower carb diet to a, to a very low carb diet, you know, almost a carnivorous diet that I saw about a 10 point increase in my maximum heart rate and, a, and about a 10 point decrease in my resting heart rate. So my heart rate reserve went up by about 20 points, which I find it to be pretty significant, particularly in the light of the fact that I'm in my 50s now. And so generally what we see is with age, those things go the other way. You, you lose heart rate reserve. You know, your max heart rate sort yeah. of declines and your, your, your resting heart rate, you know, can stay low depending how fit you are. But I found that just independent of what kind of training I did, because often resting heart rate reflects your fit level of fitness. But yeah. maximum heart rate tends to go to, to, to decrease over time as we age. And I saw the opposite going where I got better. And one of the things I postulate, I know – you know, much of the heart rate rate is controlled by the, you know, the, the nervous system of the heart, you know, the, the different, you know, the bundle of hiss and the Purkinje fibers and the SA node and all those things come yeah. in to come in to regulate that. And one of the things I see with low carb ketogenic and, and carnivorous diets in particular is people seem to recover, uh, you know, just in general terms, things like peripheral neuropathy improve. So I wonder if there is some sort of, uh, un, you know, improvement in general you know, neurophysiology that allows that to occur. Any thoughts on that? Um, there, there have been a few speculation. It's not something I have personally gone into research, but I'm happy to report what some of my colleagues um, have, have uh, speculated. Um, that can definitely be an effect. Uh, that I would assume you would notice it more at rest. So I think that the biggest impact um, from what you said, um, it would be perhaps at rest. And that would also go hand in hand with HIV because normally there is, you know, a, a, an inverse an inverse correlation between the two. So as the as they beat become less, the variability increases. This is a natural process. Um, also, for, for the higher end of the heart rates, um, maybe profusion of blood could potentially be affected. And this is an area that I have not done uh, research and I would feel a total fraud talking about it. But um, the, the definitely as far as uh, electrolytes and type of profusion, this is where it seems to be heading as far as postulation from my colleagues. 
Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's tremendously interesting stuff. Now your background because you've been doing this with athletes. I know you've got a, a, a company. It's called is it called Equilibria or something something along those lines? Is that where you yeah. you deal with yeah. athletes and do nutrition? You've been doing that for a decade and a half now. Um, what? Because you I heard you talking to Dr. Bubs and you said you do you've done a ketogenic diet or a low carb diet and then you find that long term that that you find that, that does not is not effective for you long term. Or can you speak to um, that? Where you, what you've seen with that? Yeah, right, right. So um, we there are there are a few things to consider when doing a a, a, a dietary protocol, and it, it really depends what people focus on. So the first thing I ask when someone comes to see me is, okay, what is your goal? Is it health or is it performance? That 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 tends to divide. The, 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 the objective reasonably well, although there is a gray line in between the two. So is your purpose being healthy and we try to get the best performance maintaining certain physiological data as, you know, on, on, on the dot as we can, or you are looking for performance despite what the health outcome would be. So given that, then automatically gives me an idea of, uh, where we can investigate a little bit more. Now, strict ketogenic diet for all sports, um, I have not found to be um, always successful. In fact, most of the time, not successful on the very long term. So not the usual six weeks, three months, six months. I'm talking more on the anything above nine months onwards to be constantly on that and um, it started to 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 challenge some of the systems in in a way that i have not seen before covered most of the studies we have there is an ongoing joke um amongst the non-ketogenic low-carb community saying that you know uh, how long does it take does it take for the ketogenic diet to to uh to show its effect and the answer is one day longer than the longest study because obviously <laughs> they're taking the mickey which is actually a quite funny one <laughs> however um so in the individuals that we did more of a longitudinal observation rather than just an intervention um we started to observe that for example certain uh for example testosterone seems to drop a bit quite quite a bit um, the cortisol versus cortisone, both endogenous, that is, um, the ratio started to go a little bit more towards the cortisone. This was by a Dutch test, so, you know, reasonably decent test. Uh, well, it, I really like it. For me, it's a really good test. But um, And we started to see that the, the, the recovery time, contrarily what we would show at the start of the protocol, um, they, they actually took longer to recover from given sessions. Absolutely, there could be so many other confounders that we were not to fully able to control for obvious reason. Because in a longitudinal observation, that you know they can they can have unhappiness at home. They can have all sorts of things. However, when you start to find you know it, it, quite a few of these people and. 70 to 80 percent of the total people that we observed they started to peak down then you start to question 
okay, well, what was happening here? Um, I have not seen any detrimental drop in health status within the three months. However, if the exercise was more on the glycolytic, both uh, so in the high intensity side, between the third and the fifth month, this is when we started to observe the, pot the potential risk period. Then we had one that it would never adapt, doesn't matter, didn't matter what they did. We, 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 did, we were not aware of any CPT1 and 2 and CAT uh, gene SNP and the presence seemed to be there. Uh, interestingly, the person couldn't fast very well either. Um, so, and, and despite a very healthy approach to dietary nutrition. And then we had another one that a year later on a, on a, on a virtually uh, high protein with decent amount of fat and virtually hardly any carbs, um, it was just kept increasing and, and increasing and increasing its performance and feeling better and better and better. So there is, I think, a certain degree of individual suitability I, I i definitely can bet for that but what in specific gives that then we don't know if people are on a ketogenic and they move to low carb on a high volume we did not notice any major drop in performance bear in mind that these were not olympic athletes and were not professional athletes so that's another confounder that i'm not able to to, to, to say across all athletes. There was all uh, advanced amateur athlete and what we call, you know, semi-pro. So the, 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 it wasn't an hobby. It was, it was a, you know, it was a second job. Yeah. Um, so, so this is what we have observed. I'm not, I'm not sure if that answer your, your query, good man. No, that's, a, that's an excellent response. You know, one of the things, and, and one of the things that I've seen with, with the ketogenic diet, a lot of times people will, and I think there's some good information about athletics and protein requirements. And I think sometimes with a ketogenic diet, perhaps the protein is just not enough uh, long-term for that same performance. Same thing we Absolutely. see with people that go on, you know, that go on, you know, plant plant-based diets where they where they undercut their protein a little bit and so unless they really heavily supplement and so i have found you know and again as you probably were I, I do a carnivorous diet which is i get a lot of protein I, you know I'm, I'm 300 400 grams a day oftentimes but i'm still in a in a very fat range you know my, my fat macros are still in the 70 percent range so near these ketogenic ranges and for me my performance even even 18 19 months into this i continue to get better long term so maybe it's maybe it's a restriction of the protein that might have an impact there it's hard to say yeah um but it's interesting you, yeah. you have that example of the guy that was taking a lot of protein and he, he noted continuing performance because as i continue to query and again these are all short-term very informal things but i'm getting observations of, of, of athletes in various sports whether it's you know uh, professional rugby players like owen frank the new zealand all black yeah. uh, who arguably is a you know a very high level athlete obviously one of the better ones in the world he's doing well on that a lot of jujitsu athletes and strength athletes continue to, to notice improved performance, at least in the in the in the you know six months range from what I've seen so far. So it'll be interesting to see how that is distinguished from a strict ketogenic diet, where you know you're you're constantly attempting to get into ketosis and you're constantly, uh, you know, adding fat, which which I think uh, I think there's people discovering that that you know constantly pushing too much fat can be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. 
the other bag. Oh, I'm so sorry. Now, you, go ahead. I can jump in after. I'm not. It's not a pressing thing. I just had something to add to that. No, no. Go, go for it, good man. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what you said really resonated with me because, like, when I went into kind of the high fat world from a high carbohydrate background, um, the thing I noticed I think was pretty similar to what a lot of athletes do notice, and that was like. Uh, you see these kind of really quick changes in like your day-to-day life that are like like obvious improvements. Like for me, it was I was sleeping through the night again. Um, my energy levels were consistent throughout the days. I wasn't noticing much swelling and things after workouts. Um, but when I noticed when I kind of stuck to that more or less strict ketogenic clinical, I like to call it clinical ketogenic diet because that's where I think we're getting down to those low levels of like maybe 30 grams of carbohydrates a day. Um, what yeah. happened is when I move out of like kind of a recovery phase or even just a, a high volume, low intensity phase and into kind of that peak phase of training where I'm doing workouts, my volume's high, less rest between, uh, workouts. That's where I'd start to notice things like I didn't have that very last gear. And I started to notice things like my heart rate would be higher at a given pace out on a run. But then when I would kind of bring back the carbohydrates to a, a lesser degree than, than what you'd see in like a high carb athlete, uh, but higher than what you would see in like a clinical ketogenic protocol, I noticed I kind of got that last gear back. I was able to like the heart rate came back down at those given paces. So that's when I started kind of playing around with more or less periodizing a low carbohydrate diet where in my lower training phases, I'm really, really low in my highest training, I'm like maybe up to 20%, maybe a handful of times a year, 30% of my intake from carbohydrate. Um, yeah. But always keeping fat, like that primary um, macronutrient. And, uh, yeah. you know, so for me, it's always been like, in short, like what I usually advocate with the athletes I've worked with is like, uh, you want to get fat adapted enough to be able to utilize that as a very, very good tool when you're racing. Um, and the, the field test we often use is if you can go out for your long run, uh, once a week and just fuel on water and electrolytes and feel consistent energy levels, you're fat adapted enough. And then it's about kind of just bringing back little bits of carbohydrates here and there. So you can kind of nail those more intense workouts or those longer workouts with a little intensity in them, um, to also kind of maximize performance and almost more or less walk that thin line between being in ketosis and just out of ketosis and kind of be able to float back and forth. Um, you 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 summarize in a much better English than what I can ever uh, <laughs> say exactly what I was just about to say. So um, I'm I'm glad you, you you did that because and and I I don't I don't sell anything. I don't sell keto. I don't sell carbs. I don't sell you know I I don't sell diets. I to me it is mainly my work has been mainly of observation, um, and that's exactly specifically what we have observed and in fact people that did um, they they use the maffetone kind of periodization polarization i'm so sorry uh, of training um they seem to get really really good benefit in ketosis but if you think about it if you go at you know for 80 percent of the time at a low heart rate, the body will have ample amount of time to maintain and keep the glycogen stores, you know, nicely dense, packed up. Even if at lower level, it becomes a little bit more, how can I say, uh, uh, strict in, in using these. Now, 
if you don't have that type of approach and you do a high intensity type of approach and you do soon enough not to allow the body to replenish glycogen stores on a straight ketogenic diet, this is when I think we miss the gear, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to kind of add to that too, like, um, you know, I've been doing the high fat stuff for just under seven years. So I'm, I'm always kind of trying, like, once I get something that I feel is working really well, I'm not like opposed to like introducing something a little different just to kind of see what may also work or what may work better. And on the th the reason I got intrigued with uh, Sean, Sean Baker's kind of style was um, one thing I did notice with uh, the last kind of training buildup I've done was uh, I've more or less followed the same protocol, the periodized nutrition. Um, yeah. But one thing I did a little different is I put a much bigger emphasis on just trying to be really more or less regimental about getting two plus pounds of red meat in a day. Um, and what I kind of have noticed through this process is that when I kind of have that red meat up there at a little higher than I had historically, I have been able to get away with a little less carbohydrate than I had in the past. And it'd be interesting to see if that's the increased protein, because I'm definitely probably eating a little more protein than I would have during these training blocks in the past. And then, you know, you yeah. introduce the gluconeogenesis. So, you know, with right. that example that you gave and then Sean himself, you know, having those upwards to 30% intake of protein, even in the almost complete absence of carbohydrate, uh, you know, that could be almost another angle as opposed to the like, kind of carb sneak mode that I've been doing more more traditionally. Yeah, absolutely. This is great because this I wanted to now involve uh, Sean a bit because the the I see a substantial difference between things going wrong when the ketogenic diet or a too low, if I can so call it, carbohydrate approach is going, you know, is leading the situation a bit pear-shaped so in resistance training interestingly enough i saw by far the least amount of problems with the application of a ketogenic diet so uh, that seems to also fit with um louis Villasenor kind of group and the, all the guys at the keto gains um they're, they're not specific into performance but it is a form of performance um despite there are there are no uh, weight in goals or whatever they 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 look at physiological status and morphometrics which is fine um so in a way it's still a type of performance things start to get a little bit more hairy in high volume with intensity as well and so endurance pure endurance race um like ultra ultra marathon that is an application that i rarely saw that going wrong but if you start to see for example cyclists at any of the big tour as soon as they get a hill they in training they reported to us that there was nothing in the tank the first hill was okay the second one they started to struggle the third one they had to virtually you know walk it at a walking speed um, so that confirms exactly what you just mentioned, Zach. Um, if someone is doing more resistance training uh, and their, their, their goal is also to minimize, um, you know, subcutaneous body fat, uh, then I think is a great application. Um, if they start to then enter the kind of also sprints, kind of CrossFit 
type of world, then this is when I saw quite a few people going wrong, um, especially if then they add more loads like intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding and doing cold immersions and doing... So when the loads become too high, is, is, is becomes, it becomes a little bit more less manageable. Um, one of the things we were thinking on that is we, 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 as far as insulin is concerned, in, in, insulin is an enemy for someone that is insulin resistant in a way. But insulin has got a really bad press, sometimes not fully justified because we need some of the aspects of insulin that seldomly are covered when we see the usual, you know, thread or, you know, social media, uh, because we start from a subset of population that is diseased. In that case, insulin, of course, has a bad press. But for an athlete, in a way, insulin is, is, <laughs> is essential, uh, is very, very important. <clears throat> um, insulin and IGF-1 have anti-inflammatory properties and also obviously they help with the transport of amino acid and replenish the, the stores and despite many cells are not insulin so insulin is a facilitator in order to get things across into the cells it also has these two effects of anti-inflammatory um, and enable the body to 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 replenish the cells so one of the things that have been postulated is that a much higher protein diet, potentially even above normal requirements, which we know that this is very empirical, um, it might also act via insulin pathways, and that could be a potential added reason why a higher um, protein diet could also work. Um, I, don't, I don't fully know that. Uh, but definitely something that I would want to investigate. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. We had Ben Bickman on uh, a couple of days ago, very interesting topic, and he was talking about insulin and glucagon and, and protein in the, in the presence and absence of carbohydrates. And so there's carbohydrates yeah. impact how insulin is, is uh, responds to protein in the diet. So it's very interesting. I think we're going to get Stuart Phillips on here in the, in, in, in the coming time, and I know he's a very uh, knowledgeable guy about protein. I, I think we can probably get his input on that stuff. But you make a very a couple good points. Um, one is, you know, we, you know, it, it seems like, you know, when when the dietary world discovers one thing, you know, we saw this with mTOR, we see this with cholesterol, we see this with insulin. Yeah. If it's labeled in any way as bad, then everybody thinks the right answer is zero. We've got to eliminate it completely, yeah, precise, and, and, precise, and that's yes. and that's not how <laughs> physiology works. You know, we need insulin. Insulin is not necessarily. I mean, we ha we make insulin for a reason. There are good reasons for it. Yes, chronic hyperinsulinemia, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, elevated insulin is a bad thing, but it doesn't mean we don't need it periodically. And so I think, you know, that that's just a, a general take home point. The other thing you kind of just in passingly mentioned was you talking about metabolic stressors things like exercise, but you put, you, I, th I think I heard you say something about cold immersion. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I know there's a lot of people that are excited or interested about implementing cold immersion, and we know it has a lot of different controversy. Is it, is it beneficial? Is it negative to, you know, athletes with muscle protein synthesis and recovery and, and all those things? Are, are you able to talk a little bit about that stuff in regard to uh, metabolic effects of uh, cold immersion? Sure. Um, 
I'm laughing because um, the I'm not sure if you come across a book by Alex Hutchinson called Endure. Um, the, the, the title of Endure is the short version. is 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 a lot longer. And uh, I was I was chuckling when when he gone through the the cold immersion chapter um, or a section within. <clears throat> pardon me, the chapter. Um, in many people, I think. Um, has more of a <clears throat> feel-good effect rather than a, a, a tangible uh, effect. Some some top-end elite athletes still use it and still swear by it. Um, the research, as you may have seen, is conflicting uh, because now there is a seemingly a, a new trend, which is to have a warm kind of jacuzzi style in showing even better adaptation um, than cold immersions. Um, I tell you what I would do um, as far as suggesting it, but if someone totally hates it, I don't, I don't push it. I don't, it's not, it's not a, a deal breaker uh, for someone, you know, to, 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 to work. Um, one of the things that I, I have noticed that definitely does, it tends to dramatically um, lower heart rate and increase heart rate variability. And this is virtually uh, immediate. Uh, many times I measured it on, on, on starting from myself and then extending to, to individuals that were happy to do that or they were already doing that. So it seems to have a blunting effect on inflammatory response. So automatically you start thinking, do I want to blunt the inflammatory response or do I want to prolong it and support it? So, for example, if someone is on tissue remodeling and it is in a resistance training and they are focusing on the mass of the muscle or the, the quality of the, um, of, the, of the rebuild, then perhaps is not the first thing that would jump in my head. Maybe, maybe it will blunt the effect of the tissue remodeling. Whereas if someone has, a, 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 for example, a, 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 does a bout of effort of physical activity and then they need to recover quickly for another activity without the tissue remodeling and et cetera, and they want to blunt that inflammatory response, this is where perhaps uh, the application could be very useful. And um, Australia, the Australia Institute uh, for the Olympic um, seems to have done a lot of research. I heard a couple of podcasts by one of the researchers and they were really, really uh, convincing in, in the research they were actually using. But what, I, what I've noticed, it, it doesn't materialize for everyone. Um, and one of, the, one of the thing is the temperature of the water in relation to the time <clears throat> that someone can hold it. And we know about the diver's effect, which, you know, slows the heart rate. So the, I think there are a couple of things to consider. One, the effect on the autonomic nervous system, and is one thing. And the other one is on blunting the inflammatory response. So the question I ask in my ignorance on the matter is, do I want to blunt the inflammation or do I want to maintain it for tissue remodeling and adaptation of the muscle. So that will say, will, will, that will <clears throat> skew my, 
my my suggestion on on people do have it don't have it incidentally enough i find it really really relaxing so after the first six seven seconds when my breathing is heavily compromised <laughs> as soon as i start to relax into it then when i come out i have this you know surge of well-being but i can't say that everyone should do it because it works on end of one so um but i tend to adopt that if i'm if i'm bruised for example after training and you know i've got hits everywhere yada 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 um i find that a really really great way to reduce the potential for uh, for bruises the the soreness especially around uh you know ribs and arms and 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 etc um but for resistance training and weightlifting um i i personally wouldn't 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 use it i'm sure there are people that use it very successfully but i that's not the first thing that would jump in my in my mind yeah i think the the what i have kind of come away from looking at it and there's a lot of back and forth on the literature and again we don't know dosage timing how yeah. cold how long those things are you know it's just there's just not enough data to say that stuff but i find that you know, when people are looking at when they have multiple performances in a day, you know, some people will find that a, that, a, that a, a cool bath or an ice bath or a shower sometimes help them to get ready for the next contest. But I agree that if you've done a heavy resistance training workout and we, we, we think of inflammation as a bad thing, you know, but again, it's context dependent inflammation directly after athletic activity or weight training. Again, what like Alessandro was saying is is necessary and it's part of our remodeling process. That is different. That's differentiated from the sort of chronic inflammation that accompanies chronic disease. And I think there's 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 a there's a big difference in yeah. that. Inflammation is not necessarily the bad What's guy. It is, a, it is a, it is a response to the insult. And so the inflammatory cascade is our body's response. It's not necessarily always all bad it has to do with you know we're dealing with damage here and that's what's going on and so i think there's a misconception yeah. on that um the other thing yeah. i find for me uh you know has has i implement a little bit of cold therapy is sometimes to help with, with, with to help me with sleep you know quite honestly because i'm so adapted I've, I've taken thousands of cold showers now so it doesn't really stress me out like i agree the first 10 seconds are tough and then after you get through that it, it's, it's it actually is pretty relaxing and a lot of times you come out there you're almost euphoric you know particularly if you do it very for a long period of time but i find that if i take that an hour before bedtime that I it, it 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 drops my core body temperature possibly a little bit at least cools me off and then I sleep better and so that's those are the applications I found useful but I agree Absolutely. doing it doing it directly after a heavy deadlift session where I want to get stronger is not where I'm going to put an ice bath in it'll be it'll be somewhere else in that time frame. Yeah, precisely. The other application is exactly that I use it for is exactly what you just described it, within the hour, 45 minutes to kind of just stay the edge off. Um, the 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 uh, the cool temperature. Uh, I mean, it has obviously a marginal effect, but that marginal effect can go a very long way. And this is as far as my observation. And and this was reasonably controlled because I I said people don't change anything in the routine, maintain everything as you're doing. So same food, same routine, same same attitude, same approach, but just make sure that you introduce that. And uh, we did uh, two weeks every other day in two weeks nothing um then again and then nothing again so he tested twice and both time revealed a better quality of sleep but also better self-reported data the following day which that is the important bit at the end of the day 
you know, any tracker or a ring or whatever the people use it is it can be gray and they can in a way if they see that the tracker will say tonight, last night you slept at 90 percent instead of 80, they there is some form of placebo effect that they can have. So would I, I eliminated all of that and say, OK, well, how do you actually feel the following day? How do you you know, how do you what is the self-reported data? And it, 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 I was pleasantly surprised by that. Yeah, what, there's some, um, you know, just one thing like that I always talk to like, you know, athletes that I've worked with and I kind of am trying to try to stay con conscious of myself is like with all these things, whether it be like an ice bath, whether it be like intermittent fasting or, you know, a timed fast or switching your diet to high fat, low carb or any of that stuff is, you know, the onset at the very least is kind of like a stressor. So, um, you kind of have to be more or less cognizant of stress as a whole. Like where are you getting stress in your life? Like where is your stress from working out? Where is your stress from, from work, from family, yeah. from friends, from nutrition, from, you know, all these little hacks that we try to do to try to improve ourselves. And, you know, my, my message is always like, we want to micro stress you so that you get stronger and then micro stress you again. Uh, and just kind of keep doing that. So you gradually get stronger and better. And as opposed to just, hitting your system with everything at once and then kind of like falling apart and end up taking more rest time than needed. Yeah. I've, I've, I, I, this is such a great point, uh, Zach, because I, I last year I had three people that literally I had to pick them up with a spoon. They were so dismantled, so com completely flat and everything they were doing was technically good for them or good for health. But when they kept going, merging, going for extended fasted rides at certain intensities and then adding cold shower and then cold immersions and then intermittent fasting. And then, you know, shall I go from eight hours down to six? I said, dude, your diet is pretty impeccable. It's better than mine. You are having all of this load going for fasted ride over two hours uh, on a bike, that is. And, and and then you add that. I don't think an hour more or less is going to give you that. In fact, against my suggestion, one of them in specific reduced that feeding window and variables got completely haywire, even worse. And interestingly, one of the things that we found was cortisol was very flat. Um, one had an inverted profile, so lower levels in the morning, and then shooting up at night, and 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 the other one also had uh, the first one also had low testosterone. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's it's it, there were periods in in which someone can uh, have acute loads, but generally a very very good way is this micro load micro challenge that will lead a constant degree of adaptation, maintaining health. Uh, so I totally, yeah, totally agree with you, Zach. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because we, a lot of times, you know, many people will say you can't be an elite level athlete and be healthy. And I, and I think that there's, I think you can, you know, I think you just have, you have to approach it right away. And I, I see a lot of people, they make these, like you said, they want to add 50 things at once. You know, it's a fasting, it's a, it's a low carb, it's, a, you know, the cold charge, it's the fasted training. You know, they try to, they try to just... If a little's good, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go the whole way. 
And a lot of times <laughs> yes. it ends up, it ends up, you know, they're running into a wall, you know, it's kind of like, yeah. you know, it's see if you don't, yeah, it's like, it's, you know, it's kind of like one of the, one of the analogies with, uh, with, you know, back in the, uh, I think in the eighties where the Bulgarian weightlifting team, you know, they would, they, they use their analogy of how they train people was just yeah. like throwing a bunch of eggs at the wall and which ones ever didn't break were the ones that get, which succeeded. Yeah. And so a lot of people have that same approach, you know, they obviously produce really good athletes and the few that were genetically able to withstand that type of, uh, training and style and so i think we have people that all want to try to do this stuff and then they end up crashing and burning and then wondering what happened to them it was a quite spartan way to for, for athletic selection wasn't it <laughs> yeah but i mean they they produce some good guys i mean you know of the of the one oh, percent yeah. of the people only one left <laughs> you know, one standing you got to be good but you know i guess if you're willing to go through that stuff um hey i just just want to you know because i know you're as you continue to investigate this stuff you know i think it'd be interesting because when i looked at my stuff you know again back to the beginning of the show my glucose was high but my insulin was extremely extremely low i was very insulin sensitive and my markers for inflammation were also extremely low you know looking at one thing crp and again unfortunately the markers of inflammation we have out there there's there's a lot of context behind that stuff. I don't think we fully understand them, whether it's IL-6 or CRP or some of the other ones out there. Yeah. So it's, it's just interesting to see that stuff. And it'd be nice to see, you know, if, you, if, you, if we see more, because I think it's an interesting phenomenon. We're seeing these high-level athletes who we would, we would normally think, you guys are really healthy, you're lean, you're fit, and yet they're running around with blood glucoses that would, would make, you know, diabetic, you know, endocrinologists shudder, you know. And so it's kind of an interesting yeah. sort of situation we're seeing here. So it'd be interesting to kind of parse that out, see what's going on physiologically. Is it pathology? Is it physiological adaptation to what's going on? And, and how do we a, deal with that? A, a, a recent, uh, very, very recent to confirm, uh, in a way, everything and summarize everything we discussed, uh, I... I uh, one of my clients in 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 LA is 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 a is a double for for a very well renowned let's call it hard guy how's that without yeah. actually saying the name um and he's obviously a very similar size to this guy um and he he I could not believe the data you, you know when you look at the data and you look at the diet and you look at you think you should not be alive. Um, he is kind of a medium protein, higher fat, low carb, virtually vegetarian, and is kind of lacto over vegetarian. So vegetarian in between inverted commas, um, and and his fasting glucose was constantly above 19. And I said, dude, uh, yeah, the diet is amazing. I know that all the books are here. I know in LA is really, really trendy and et cetera, but do me a favor, offload. So when you're not shooting, um, kind of back off the intensity of the training and do maybe some skill work and just stay away from speed and strength training. And suddenly, the, the well suddenly not that suddenly but within uh, a week 10 days we started to see that the glucose would enter the 80s and he, he actually now is in the low 80s and as soon as he starts to increase the load then obviously goes back into the 90s so i said to him try to add some carbs right before and right after their very high intensity type of training. Now, interestingly, that seems to be as beneficial as backing off the load. So maybe if you, you may want to consider um, either right before the session, 
and right after the session, not necessarily during your sessions, if they're really high intensity, maybe use some carbs and have a look. I'm not saying I don't want to be erratic here to you uh, because, you know, I, I, I know that you, you follow a certain dietary lifestyle, but um, I would perhaps uh, do a little test maybe for a couple of weeks um and, 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 and you know i had endless amount of people say oh will i lose my fat adapted I said dude no it, it just just relax <laughs> is not going to happen overnight uh first of all two you still will burn a, a much higher proportion of of fats and no one so far has been able to quantify where is that cutoff point between um, you know, being keto, non-keto, we, we define people that are in ketosis or, or ketogenic with the presence of one main ketone in blood and some of them as far as breath. But at the end of the day, the, the, the low-carb approach, I'm adapted, I don't know what that means because how, how do we scientifically quantify are you burning 72.8% of fat versus the rest of carbs. So where is the cutoff point of where we identify someone that is burning more fat? Athletes naturally burn more fats anyhow. So given that kind of uh, uh, um, uh, problem to a side, um, you, you might want to, to see what happens if you back off. So if you have, for example, a, a low period and the glucose kind of, tapers down a bit then that may be the intensity of your trainings and at the same time the higher intensity of the training compared to general individuals and at the same time being on a very very low carb so if that test proves to be positive then you may want to consider maintaining the same regaining the same intensity and perhaps adding a little bit of carbs before and after. I'm not saying hundreds, I'm saying just a little bit that is necessary for the training in that moment in time, and then still maintain exactly the same approach. That That's something that to us has worked very, very well. Yeah, I, you know, I think what I see is, you know, your body is going to, you know, if you're doing a very glycolytically demanding exercise, you know, for me it's it's high-level rowing where I, where I go, you know, maximum intensity, you know, over these short period of times, I do intervals on that. You know, I think your body will, if it's, if it's a glucose requiring condition, your body's going to make it, you're going to get, your body's going to adapt and make it what you need. And so whether you get it exogenously or you produce it endogenously, I think yeah. it's there. And it's interesting. I wish I'd have asked Ben Bickman this because, you know, if you have glucose in the blood, you know, it's going to be uptake through that glute four transporter, you know, during exercise. And is that as quick as, as glycogenesis, you know, you've got intramuscular glycogen that you have to break down. There's an enzymatic process that's going to cleave that glycogen in a gl glucose molecule, so then it's, it's shuttled through the Krebs cycle. Um, I wonder if, 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 if pulling it through from the blood through the GLUT4 transport is just as an efficient process as, as a glycogenesis. And, and, I, and I don't know the answer to that, and that might be interesting to see. So I think one way or the other, your body's going to use the fuel it needs for that particular activity. It's amazing how adaptable we are. And you're probably right that if I were to add, you know, some sort of simple carbohydrate, you know, around my training periods, it would probably blunt what I require to do. Whether or not that makes a difference for me health-wise, I'm not convinced yet. You know, I, I don't know that, uh, you know, in absence of inflammation, in absence of a high oxidative environment, having a blood glucose a little higher is, is necessarily always a bad thing, despite the associational data. Because I, I look at it the same way that we look at, 
cholesterol. You know, high cholesterol is associated with blah, 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 you know, cardiac disease. But that association only holds up when other conditions are met, such as high, you know, hyperinsulinemic states, uh, you know, underlying vascular uh, inflammatory disease or inflammatory conditions. And so I think the same sort of rules may apply a little bit to glucose, where if we don't have that uh, insulin dysregulation, if we, you know, if we don't driving that glucose into, into cells, uh, you know, in a, in a high rate, if we don't have uh, underlying high levels of oxidative stress, then it may not be quite as much of an issue. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I'm interested to see how the physiology plays out over time, but it will be an interesting experiment. And, you know, for me, and I think there's some other people where, you know, you have to find the right carbohydrate that you can do that with because some people, yes, uh, right. will, yeah, well, some people will find that, you know, there, there's people that will advocate just the junk food, you know, like I know the DH Kiefer is like, you know, you're going to backload with this cherry, cherry tarts and garbage, which I think is, I don't think that's a good strategy, but I think there's other people will find if they take on a, a very fibrous uh, carbohydrate approach, it, it bothers them with it from a GI standpoint and might exacerbate some other things. So finding something that is uh, relatively innocuous would get you that source, maybe a simple starch, maybe something like rice or something like that. I don't know if you have any yeah, thoughts absolutely. on that. Absolutely. Uh, the, 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 that seems to be also very, uh, very personal. So even, so for me, for example, grains are not great, but they can be great. Um, because they will sustain in an unjustified glucose um, postprandial for quite some time, and I'm talking hours. Whereas if I have the same amount in in simpler type of form of carbohydrate, then the uptake is 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 much quicker, and I go back to the mean very very quickly. So obviously you can use that wisely in relation to your training or in relation to the goals that someone would have. In addition to that, there are different responses within intra-individuals. So um, I tend to maintain a curve much longer with grains compared to other people. And I tend to have a much better curves with fruit and starch is, is in what we call cellular type of carbohydrate. So I try to stick to those. Having said that today, my lady uh, cooked pizza and I said, what the heck? And I had it. You know, I had it all, enjoyed every single bit. There was no guilt in that. And I paid the consequences. What the heck? So, <laughs> <laughs> and obviously my protein intake is pretty, you know, pretty great um, and high. Um, so I think people can use that carbohydrate replenishment and also it's very much in related to mass. So, um, <clears throat> 50 grams of carbohydrate, what do they mean? Well, to someone which is quite petite and nervy, then that is a certain amount. For someone perhaps like you, Sean, it, it's what? Is a, is, a, is a speck in in the pond. So, you know, people, should I have no more than 30? And say, dude, your lean mass is 70K. Do you have any idea how much glycogen you can hold? <laughs> so... <laughs> I think once again, as you said earlier, context is king again. So it's just important to see things in the right. I, I, as a very, very rough estimate, if this is of any help to anyone, I try to estimate loosely the amount of time I spend in glycogenic, uh, in, in gly I'm sorry, in glycolytic um, heart rates and type of effort. And I try to replenish that through before, not very often during because we we 
we we personally me personally we we we're, we're not allowed to drink during training sessions uh anything um and right afterwards that seems to maintain very 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 good levels of uh, fasting glucose and daily averages including retirement glucose which is something i started to look into um more recently uh, last six months um and that seems to not cause any adverse effect or or or, or you know an increase in body fat or whatever um what is interesting is that in low intensity type of work when people even go to the 100 150 grams of carbohydrates that doesn't seem to affect the glucose the slightest so and correctly as you said we don't have long-term data on people with slightly higher glucose in sub-cell population that are on a ketogenic low-carb diet so i'm not 100 percent sure how the uh, data from general subset population, how how much is how how is it relevant to people? I'm not sure if this makes any sense. So we take data from general population and see a certain glucose is associated with all cause mortality above 84, 85, 86 milligram per deciliter, but is a different subset of population when we measure and consider low carbohydrate and ketogenic type of style so we do not know then elevated glucose in that so we have hba1c as a as a potential for um and that seems to be low so personally i wouldn't worry too much but i would still maintain and keep an eye on it and try to keep it as low as i can especially if it's a reflection of an inflammatory response that is low grade and chronic yeah, I think that's good advice. I mean, I think the the nice thing with dealing with people, and, and we, sh- we we call this show the Human Performance Outliers, but I think, you know, the athletes that are way out on the physiological edges, on the fringes, and the people, whether it's dietary, whether it's, you know, performance-wise, there's a lot we can learn from those groups. And and again, it's, it's, it's I think the message is that we have this subset of data, data that sits for the standard 70 kilo, you know, five foot t- 10 pound male yeah. that eats eats a 60% carbohydrate diet. And that is yeah. what the, the prototypical human is. And all these values that we base those on do not necessarily apply to Zach Bitter, who's running 100 mile races, to me, who's, you know, 115 kilos, you know, lifting heavy. And so I think there's there's yeah. a lot of a lot of room for uh, uh, variance in there. It's not accounted for by the, by the normal uh, metrics that we use. This is this is an important application because despite there is a correlation between HRV and glucose, that is also done in general subset population. And what I found is that in athletic in 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 athletes in general, especially high volume athletes, the HRV is quantifiably higher than the average individual. Now, this is when glucose, in my view, in our view, becomes very important because Subtle variation of the HIV may not pick up the actual low-grade chronic inflammatory response because the athletes already have an increased variations compared to standard data of general population. So this is when the glucose can become a very good proxy to perhaps highlight there could be a potential for chronic degree of you know low-grade chronic inflammatory response present and then potentially lead to, um, you know, uh, repetitive strain injury or, you know, things like um, um, 
certain type of fractures that you know don't necessarily involve a, 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 a hit or a fall. Um, and whereas the, the, the correlation between HIV and glucose in general population is much, much stronger than in athletes. Once again, the, the, the athlete would show much less variation because they put their body through so much stress and that automatically would increase the variation at rest or through a restful period. Um, so HIV may be less prompt, still very, still great, but less prompt in picking up the, the, the low-grade inflammatory response that some, some of the athletes may be. In fact, I, I designed a formula of RMSSD divided by the square of the glucose, and that is what is going to the study. Um, I wanted to give more weight to the glucose in order to, 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 to detect more of a chronic inflammatory response. Hey, that's, that's great stuff, Alistair. Well, I, I tell you what, it's, we promise to get you off the phone by 7 p.m. UK time so you can avoid that, that, that's that computer <laughs> being fired up, stressing, so we're getting closer. So let us know how can people find out how to get a hold of you. This has been tremendous information. I know you're on several other podcasts. You know, I, I recommend people listen. Well, first listen to ours, then go listen to the other ones. But um, let us know where we can find you and what else is coming up for you in the near future. Um. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very modest. I, I have a website, which is my full name, as in alessandroferretti.co.uk. Uh, um, I haven't updated it in the last month or so uh, on the things I've been up to, um, but I'm writing a book, um, and that is going to be my main focus, plus um, the launch of our app. We have a free web version, especially for the low-carbohydrate keto group, um, to help them in refine their energetic intake better. Um, the, 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 I have a couple of videos on my website about one of, one, one of them is calorie versus food quotient. Um, they can find information on mitokinetics.com. But if they go into alessandroferretti.co.uk, they, they're able to trace back to that. And, and, and especially for people that are on a low-carb and keto type of approach, they may want to consider punching in their, their food with that um, and actually see the how dramatic is the energetic difference. We're talking anything between 15 to 20 percent in some uh, in some cases if it's very strict. Um, so this is what I have been up to and I'm going to be uh, up to for a while, especially for the book that, oh my God. <laughs> It's like having a baby all over again. <laughs> Goodness. It sounds like you're you'll be busy. We'll we'll definitely put the links to that stuff in the show notes as well. So any listener who wants to come and find you and check out some of your stuff, they'll have uh it'll just be a click away. But um yeah, thank you so much thank for so coming much. on. It's been great to have you on and uh definitely shed some light on some things. I had some questions about. Oh. Hello. Zach, are you still there? Yep. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah, we can. All oh, right. Okay. Cool. Guys, it's been it's been it's been an honor. Both you, Sean, and and you, Zach. Uh, I I I I kept hearing and seeing feeds and stuff that you do. So I'm amazed of your um, uh, on your performance, Zach. Is you, you? I'm in awe of what you have achieved and uh, uh, on a very different level for you, Sean. Um, it's, it's been it's been an honor. 
Oh, no, this is, it's been our honor. It's been good information. I think people are going to really get a kick out of this one. So we'll have this up probably next week, Zach, I imagine. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect, perfect. Wonderful. All right, well, you enjoy your evening, and maybe we'll get you back on a little bit when you get your book done. Fantastic. Look forward to that. <laughs> All right, Alessandro. Take care. Hey, have a good evening. Uh, okay. Hey, folks. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd. That's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me at Zach Bitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker, 1967, that's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R, 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast.